We begin a new series of sermons today and go through probably a good part of this year, maybe beyond, a good chunk of the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, and principally we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the very last phrase that we'll read here in a moment. That is um, the Beatitudes, and then go through all of the texts and topics that are there, and then we'll move over a little bit in Matthew and do the Lord's Prayer. So that's something of the scope of the preaching that we are proposing to do this year. And uh, we ask that you'll be prepared yourself when you come with having read and studied along these lines together. We'll see how it goes. Right now it's pretty predictable. It's, it's verse by verse, passage by passage, tremendous topics for Christian living. Today we're going to give some background and explain a little bit about the background to the Sermon on the Mount. And that's uh, really what we hope to accomplish in these next well, I can't preach more than an hour, but we'll, we'll see how long it takes. Let's look now to the Word of God, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Nebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then moving down to verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from the Jordan. And now verse uh, chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. First, just a little bit of geography. This particular passage of scripture gives us what is called the great Galilean ministry of Christ, and then moves over into a wider ministry based in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. You remember your little maps in the back of the Bible? You've studied those from time to time when the sermon was real boring and wasn't much else to do. You'd go read your maps. Have you ever done that? You don't have to show hands. But uh, and if I see anybody looking at their maps now, I'll, I'll understand. <laughs> Jesus came down to the Jordan to listen to John the Baptist preach. And for quite a long time, there's a sense in which Christ was a disciple of John the Baptist. And we know the story how one day John saw Jesus coming and identified him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John baptized Jesus there in the River Jordan. And following that, the Holy Spirit came upon him in the likeness of a dove, and he was now at 30 years old, anointed, baptized, cleansed, fitted for the ministry of the priesthood. 
Jesus was not a descendant, a direct descendant of Aaron. He was related to the Aaronic family, but he was not a direct descendant. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was of the Kedley tribe, but he was anointed by John the Baptist, who was of the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And he performed that ritual upon Christ. And immediately, the Bible says that Jesus then went into the wilderness for t to be tempted. And then following that experience, he went back to his hometown. He'd been down in the lower southern part of the region down there in the, in the, in the uh, Jordan River Valley. But now he goes back up north, about 90 miles, to his hometown of uh, Nazareth. And there in Galilee, it's interesting that the scriptures talk about it being the Galilee of the Gentiles. When Isaiah wrote that passage back in Isaiah chapter 9, there wasn't any such thing as the Gentiles in that, in that region. That region was occupied by two of the great tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. They were occupied that territory as well as a couple of Asher and a few others came in there in that region. And it was the large fertile plain of the Jezreel Valley and on up toward the north. It was the place that, that later became the Northern Kingdom and then later became Samaria as the Assyrians took over and repopulated, et cetera. Most of you know the historical story there. So now this is a region of, of Judea is down here around Jerusalem in the southern part. There's a large region in the top that's the Gentiles and it's divided between Samaria, which is between the two, and then Galilee in the north. So Jesus' greater Galilean ministry consisted generally of about a year. There's about 50 synagogues, it's estimated, 50 towns with synagogues in that Galilean region. And each Sabbath day for a year, 52 weeks in a year, Jesus went to a different synagogue and there read the scriptures and ministered and announced the kingdom of God. So he began his ministry in that area. This particular passage as it starts tells us how he now he shifts from, from uh, the area of Nazareth in Galilee and he goes to Capernaum. Capernaum is by the sea, the sea of Galilee, the sea of Tiberias. It's to the, to the east of where Jesus was, Capernaum. Capernaum was the, what we would call the Great Lake. It's the Great Lakes region of Palestine. It's a huge lake named after uh, the, the region, but also named after Tiberius Caesar, the Sea of Tiberius. It was on this lake that a lot of good things happened. It was on this lake, this huge uh, sea there in the northern region that Jesus called his disciples, the fishermen, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. And um, it was also on this, we walked on the water. It was on the, along the shore of this where he fed the 5,000. So Jesus is going to have a significant ministry, but it details that his ministry went beyond that. It actually went down in what was called Decapolis, which is a region just south of there, which has, uh, uh, the word simply means 10 cities. And it was, a, it was a region named for that. There was another region which is not named here in our text, but it was called Perea. And it was the same. And then it came on down the east side of the Jordan into uh, the lands of, uh, of Jordan and the ancient land of Ammon and Mo even down as far as Moab. This was the, the region that was beyond Jordan. It means it's the east side. It's really, a lot of it is the modern state of Jordan. And so that's where it was. Meanwhile, in Jesus' ministry, he will work his way down to Judea, do a lot of things in Judea and Jerusalem. 
On one occasion, he has to go through Samaria to meet the Samaritan woman at the well, and then he goes back and forth. So this is something of the geography of the ministry of Christ. We say all that to say because there's significance to not only the geography, but the topography. Uh, you see Jesus in various places geographically, and one of the places you'll see him is on, is on the mountain. He's on the, the mountain there in, uh, by the, by the, in, in the north. And it's on that mountain that Jesus teaches, uh, preaches, feeds the 5,000. And then it's on that mountain that Jesus told him to meet him after he had risen from the dead. He said, meet me on the mountain in Galilee. And that's where Jesus met with the disciples and had, had some of his uh, uh, post-resurrection uh, appearances before he ascended. So this is something of the life and the geography that's involved here. What is more significant than the geography is the, the prophecy. And let me just turn and read that portion that's quoted there in our text in verses 15 and 16. The, the, uh, the writer, Matthew, is actually quoting a um, um, passage out of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter nine. Now the context has been in chapter eight and going into chapter 9, he's been talking about the gloom and the darkness and, and the cloudedness and all of the, the, the chilling effect that's been upon God's people. There's been a, an incredible amount of uh, ignorance in the land. There's a lot of sin in the land. And into this darkness, God's going to shine a light. And of course, that light is Jesus himself, the light of the world. And so that's all of this talks about, and it says in verse one, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. For the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. For in the latter time it was made glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so now he continues on in chapter nine, Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. And Jesus will speak about being, of course, the light of the world. Then in verses 3 and 4, there are uh, some history there with reference to Moses and Egypt and Gideon and some of the things that happened in Israel's history. And then we pick up in verse 6 and see if you recognize this particular passage. It's all part of the same context of what the Lord will do in that day when he sends the great light into Galilee. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, this sets the, the stage. Jesus is coming. He's the light of the world. He's bringing the light of the truth of God to God's people. He's going to do it on a mountain, which is the way it happened in the days of Moses. This is reflective of God giving the law. And what he's going to be giving them in the Sermon on the Mount is basically the, the, the rules, the regulations, the commandments, the standards, the ethos of the kingdom. And John the Baptist had come preaching the kingdom of God and calling people to repent. And Jesus came and he preached John's exact message. 
I'm glad they didn't have rules about plagiarism in those days because they both were preaching out of the same Hebrew text and they were preaching the same message. Jesus and John both said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now one word quickly, the kingdom of heaven is used in this very um, Jewish oriented book by Matthew where saying the name of God was considered irreverent at best and blasphemous at worst. And so the name of God is often removed or substituted with some euphemism. And heaven is one of the more common ones. Instead of saying the kingdom of God, we talk about God's, God's dwelling place. It's the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of God, when it's referred to in scripture, which it is in the other synoptic gospels, and in fact, in this very parallel passage in Luke, the word kingdom of God is used. Here, we'll almost always hear the writers say the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. You say, Ron, that's obvious. Why make that point? Because there's a, a, an order of people that have made a big capital uh, um, point out of the differences of this language, being the dispensationalist. They say there's a differenti differentiation that needs to be made between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's just absolutely linguistic nonsense to start with, and it won't bear the weight that they try to give it in the second place. But nevertheless, it is an important distinction to make, and uh, it's the same. Kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven are identical. John the Baptist comes preaching, and he's preaching against a background of expectation that's been around for over 400, almost 500 years. We've been talking about that 500-year epoch of time for several weeks back when we studied Daniel back last year. We were talking about over and over about how uh, God had projected what would happen. Well, following the Babylonian captivity and the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple and all that happened, there's been an expectation, a very real expectation of, of God coming to bring in the kingdom. And so the expectation by Jesus was, I mean, by the Jews was a, a decisive intervention in history to liberate and vindicate the nation of Israel. It's found over and over in the Old Testament, God made the promise. He called it restoring the fortunes of Jacob. It's found in Psalms, several places. Psalm 126 is a premier place. And then it's found in some of the prophets, the minor prophets as well. This idea of restoring the fortunes of Jacob. And, and that's what this expectation was. It was going to be, as we've said before here, an eschatological period of hope. It was the hope of Israel. It was going to be the end of time. It was going to be the last days. It was going to be the turning point in human history. It was going to be the restoration of David's fallen booth or fallen house. It was going to restore the Davidic throne, the throne of David, and restore the dynasty. Whereas David's offspring was Solomon, whose name means peace. He was the prince of peace, but he pointed really to a further coming Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And this is now the coming of Christ. So we're now seeing all of this scripture is being fulfilled in the coming of Christ. The Psalms talk over and over about God's sovereign reign. The Lord reigns. And that's the kingdom of God, that area over which God reigns. God reigns over all. God is sovereign over all. He's the creator. He's the provident keeper. And he is the final judge and, and, uh, dispenser of all things. So 
This is the sense in which the kingdom of God is perceived. The prophets repeatedly talked about a coming day of shalom, uh, a pox Israel, the peace of Israel would come upon his people. Well, you know the story. We've gone over it. It was an awful, awful time for poor Israel. You had the Babylonians. You had the, the Greeks. You had the, uh, the uh, Seleucidans. You had all of the, the difficulty with uh, um, the Romans. And now we're into the Pax Ramona. But now we're going to seek constantly the kingdom of God coming, which will be a kingdom of peace, ruled over by Prince of Peace. And the, the thing that Jesus comes in his preaching saying, as John had, was the kingdom of God is at hand. That means it's near. It's upon us. It is, as the words of the old uh, gospel song, soon and very soon. Um, John the Baptist came preaching, emphasizing the work of the king in being a judge. And he talked about using imagery from from the uh, forest and the farm, he used imagery that says it's like an axe that's laid to the root of the tree. The coming judgment. God's going to, to uh, bring all things to judgment. Its point is to purify, to sift, to judge. Using another image, it's a winnowing fan. It's a big fork that picks up the stalk and winnows it so that the grain falls out. It's, it's a type of, of uh, hand threshing, manual threshing that was done uh, there in the ancient world. This is what God is going to do. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And he called upon people to be baptized in repentance. Repentance is simply the Old Testament word used over and over is turning, turning to God. And John emphasized that people needed to repent, turn from their sins to God. Jesus didn't change the message at all. He preached a baptism. I mean, I mean he preached a message of repentance. And so this was, this is the work that, that John the Baptist was doing. And uh, just like Christ followed John, that is having the same message, preaching repentance, but the difference was that in John, we had a forerunner, one who had been prophesied in the book of Isaiah and also prophesied in the book of Malachi, the most, um, the most recent of all the extant holy scriptures, the gospel of Malachi, the last one in our Old Testament, prophesied of the coming of, of John the Baptist. But Jesus comes now, and instead of talking about a future framework for fulfillment of the kingdom of God, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, is now his contemporaneous message. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach. And then he enumerates the various aspects of that preaching. The difference is that Christ is the embodiment of the king. In his own person, Jesus Christ was the living embodiment and the manifestation of the kingdom of God. What did the kingdom of God look like in Jesus' day? Look at Christ. That's what it looked like. What did it look like in David's day? Look at David. That's what it looked like. What does the kingdom of God look like in our day? Look to the body of Christ, and you'll see what the kingdom of God looks like. It's a present reality, 
in some respects, but then there's also kind of a mystery to it. And that word is used frequently, the mysterion, the mystery, the thing that is only known with shadows and types and contours and, and horizons, but not really seen in its fullness. And there's a sense in which Christ's coming, the kingdom of God was manifest, it was revealed, it was apocalyptic, it was the curtains rolled back, it was seen. But at the same time, it wasn't seen in all of its final and full manifestation. There still was a, something about it. And Jesus taught countless parables and stories teaching about the nature of the kingdom, about how treasured it is, how it starts small, it gets large, how it runs counter to the culture of its day. And one, one parable after another, many of them found right here in Matthew and in the other gospels, principally the synoptic gospels, of course. But Jesus came and in his reality, he does several things, but the first thing that Jesus does, that his most significant work, is he begins to wage war upon Satan. Satan had dominated this world. Wouldn't you think, studying your history, your ancient history, wouldn't you think the kingdoms of this world back in those days were pretty satanic, pretty demonic, pretty occultic? They were, they were actually expressions of depravity at its worst. The sons of of all of Noah had gone into deep sin, Ham, Japheth, even Shem were, were, were progenitors of sinful humanity. And even though the flood had wiped out a really bad generation, there had come now in the last few centuries even a generation worse than that. And so comes now the kingdom of God into the middle of this. And the first thing the king must do in his conquest is he must bind the strong man. And Jesus talks about that's the way he is going to enable the gospel to go forth. Because the great deceiver that deceives God's people is going to be limited. He's going to be bound in that area. It's what Revelation 20 talks about with the binding of Satan. The capacity to deceive the nations the peoples, the ethnic groups, the same word is used that talks about taking the gospel to the nations. That group of peoples, the, the, the Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles and nations, it's all the, it's all the same word. Those, um, sometimes it's translated heathen, but, but it, it, it's basically the word ethnane, and it means the nations. And so the capacity to deceive them to where they cannot if our gospel be hid, it is hid to those that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the eyes of those that believe not, lest they see what? The light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Paul writing. So he comes now to fight the strong man, to bind the strong man. He told his disciples, he said, here's the way I vision it. The way I've seen it is I've seen Satan fall like lightning from heaven. A bolt of lightning come down. That's the way Satan has fallen out of his throne and out of his dominance. That's the prince of the power of the air. Sometimes we don't concentrate on this enough, I think, in our gospel preaching and understanding the kingdom of God. Is that first of all, there's a clash of kings. That's what the temptations of Jesus was all about. Satan himself faced Jesus. And Jesus was put up to the fight by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness. And there he began the first phase of his warfare against Satan, enduring the temptations from the deceiver and from the murderer. The prince of the power of the air, now darkness, chaos, and evil has a light shining into it. And that's what the coming of the kingdom is, uh, is all about.
this coming of the kingdom comes in great power, miraculous power, which validates Jesus' divine person. And they're kind of outlined and spelled out, the, some of the things that are done. Uh, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the lepers are cleansed, the dead is raised. These miraculous deeds that Jesus does, these wondrous works are signs to convince those so that he may be truly manifested. He may show his divinity as, as that he is the son of God. The gospel is preached in power, bringing about forgiveness, liberation, healing, restoration of the human soul. It's easy to think of the kingdom of God, first of all, in terms of magnificent array of armies on either side or in terms of a king's military power. But actually, the power of the kingdom of God comes through the life of ministry to minister to particular souls. It's a ministry to individuals. It's a calling and a raising up. It's, it's a bringing forth of particular people. It is a coming to persons whose sins are forgiven, whose lives are restored. And this power and this authority is gospel authority. Jesus comes as a missionary, one sent, an elect one, a Messiah, an anointed one. He comes to fulfill all the promises that God has made. In him, all the promises are yes and amen. They are affirmative. He's not come to condemn. The world is already under condemnation, but he's come to save. In fact, he's come to seek and to save those that are lost. Came that humanity might have life and they might have it more abundantly. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he came in the power of the Holy Spirit of God and the authority of the Holy Son of God. We've seen the, the predictions and the manifestations of this coming of Christ in the, in the notions of, of Daniel with the Son of Man, and in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord, all the great servant songs that, that talk about the ministry of Jesus. So the kingdom of God and the gospel concerning the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, is embodied in the king. And those that are in him by faith are the citizens or the subjects of that kingdom. And what is the, the, the issue of the king? The coming of the king, any king, is to first of all establish righteousness and justice. In fact, we saw this in the passage in Isaiah. It says, of, the, of his kingdom there shall be no end. He shall establish righteousness and justice. And by the way, those are parallel terms. And in many cases, the same original word is used. And it is um, talking about what the first order of business for a king is to do things and to do things right. And that's what Jesus does in his life. He lives a perfect life. And then in his atoning death, he dies a death that pays the penalty that God had required in order that God might be just and the justifier of those that come to God through Christ by faith. So he's got to set an order. He's got to it was, this was not God just winking and walking away from and shrugging his shoulders concerning man's sinful condition. This is God dealing with it in the person of his son who came willingly and, and he established this justice in his life and in his death. He established this righteousness not upon a throne 
to start with, but upon a cross. He uh, comes to reflect and to embody and to, and to uh, accomplish righteousness. That's the number one job of the gospel. In fact, when Paul talks about the gospel in Romans chapter 1, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he talks about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Later on, he'll talk about the wrath of God being revealed. And then in chapter 3, he'll talk about the, the salvation and the righteousness of God being manifested. That is spelled out. And he'll use all these words, redemption and, and, pro, and propitiation and covenant and all these words that are used to spell out the fullness of what? Establishing the rightness, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is that communicable attribute wherein he's right. He's the very person who embodies all of rightness. What is godly is right. What is ungodly is not right. He establishes that, but he does it according to a wonderful word that is given. Now, let me say another word. Does anybody have the correct time? My, my watch stopped. I've been praying that would happen, but now that it's happened, I'm not really. Eight till? Okay, I'm, I'm out of time. Let me make one more quick point. Can I make a, can I make a point? That's to talk about the difference between the church as such and the kingdom of God. They're not the same. They're not identical. They're certainly related and overlapping, but they're not identical. The kingdom is God's reign over all the universe. It's cosmic, universal dimensions, all humanity. See, God was in business from before the foundation of the world operationally. The kingdom is larger in scope than the church. The church is more narrowly defined. It is the congregation of the redeemed of all ages. It's the called out ones, the ones that are gathered together, the actual citizens of the commonwealth of Israel, that group of people upon whom come the blessings. There's a larger group of people that are not part of the church. Upon them come the curses that God has outlined for the disobedient. But this group of people, the church, are blood-bought, saved, sanctified. It's the assembly of those that belong to Jesus by election, adoption, regeneration, justification, who participate in the salvific work of the king. Others participate in the punitive work of the king. Make no mistake about it, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he reap. There's horrible judgment coming to those that do not bow their knee to Christ. And the work of this particular body, this group of people known as the church, is to be the witnesses. In Isaiah, God said, you are my witnesses. Jesus said in the commission, you shall be my witnesses. Someone needs to bear witness with their life of the kingdom of God, the mighty power of God, righteousness, judgment, justice. So the missionary work is to declare this gospel and call people to submit to the king, to follow his words, to obey his orders, and to live according to his laws. So we have the kingdom of dominion of Satan, and it's in conflict with the dominion of Christ. Well, I am out of time, so I better just mention some of these things later on. Is this helpful? Is this, is this too basic? Or is this kind of help put the things together? I really try, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. Almost every statement I made this morning is a subject of some debate, some consideration. I preach dogmatically, but I'm not bulldogmatic. 
I want to preach what I think I, the Bible teaches. But if, it, if I ever teach something that's not biblical and you can see plainly it's not biblical, forget about it. Don't pay attention to me. But if it's the word of God, you better heed it.